When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 466th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a British actress and screenwriter who is the only person who has ever won Academy Awards for both acting and writing. In addition to those two Oscars, the former for 1992's Howard's End and the latter for 1995's Sense and Sensibility, she has also won three BAFTA Awards, two Golden Globe Awards, one Emmy Award, and one Critics' Choice Award, with her other credits including 1993's The Remains of the Day and In the Name of the Father, 1998's Primary Colors, 2003's Love Actually, and for TV, the limited series Angels in America, 2004's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, 2006's Stranger Than Fiction, 2007's Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, 2009's An Education, 2013's Saving Mr. Banks, 2017's The Meyerowitz Stories, 2019's Late Night, and this year's Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. All of which might explain why the 2018 citation in which Queen Elizabeth II made her a dame describes her as, quote, one of Britain's most versatile and celebrated actresses, close quote. Why Vanity Fair has said she, quote, redefined our image of female stardom, close quote. Why Interview has called her, quote, the rarest of cinematic talents, close quote. And why the Observer's Mark Kermode once said, quote, she's up there with the great, I mean really great, British female performers, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about Emma Thompson. Over the course of our conversation, which Thompson recorded from her London home after being honored at a luncheon by the UK Critics Circle, the oldest association of critics in the world, for her services to the arts, and at which she gave a speech about the impact of film critics, the 63-year-old and I discussed the origins of her pursuit of acting and of her deep and passionate feminism, the peaks and valleys of a long career as a woman in the business, why, in Sophie Hyde's Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, she agreed to play a retired school teacher who was recently widowed and hires a sex worker to help her finally experience an orgasm, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Emma, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And on this podcast, we always begin truly at the very beginning and, and uh, always ask where our guest was Born and raised, what their folks did for a living. I know that in your case, it sort of was in the genes, right? It sort of was in the genes. I was born to parents who were what my dad used to call jobbing actors. Um, they had come res from respectively quite interesting homes, nothing to do with the arts. Mums was sort of more clergy and it was Scottish um, and uh I suppose you would call it middle class, although Scotland's not the same really in our class system. Um, so they were not, well, they didn't have much money. And her mother was one of seven children. Um, a fascinating background, actually. Um, five girls who all had red hair and who all went off to Australia because they were going to immigrate. And on the journey, which was in 1915, on a big ocean liner, every single one of the girls got telegrams saying that their fiancés had died in the First oh World War. Oh, my God. Oh. So extraordinary kind of to, to think, you know, how close that background, how close that history is to our family. And my father, um, born in rural um, England in Surrey, to a very poor family, my grandmother, um, who was a 
a scullery maid. She'd left school at 13. And the interesting part of her story was that she went to work with a childless couple who lived um, on the coast. And when the Zeppelins came over during the First World War, the wife would leave and the, the, the husband raped my grandmother who became pregnant and who was only 16 and he went back to her family who supported her and said yes we'll we'll help you to keep the child who turned out to be my uncle Fred and then they found out that this childless couple had done it twice before with their maidservants because they couldn't have children and there was no surrogate motherhood at the time so it was a form of kind of enforced violation surrogate mothers because they offered to take the child and every one of those maids has said no so both my parents came from quite sort of dramatically um different backgrounds with all sorts of trauma in those backgrounds um and perhaps that's why when they met at the bristol old Vic's theater school um they were so drawn to one another and when they married, they were in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream and mum was playing Titania and dad was playing Puck in a lot of blue makeup. <laughs> and they got married um, in the afternoon uh, and then went and did an evening performance and then their honeymoon was a day off in the country in Bristol when um, then they got went back into the theatre because they were both in the, the old Vic Theatre Company. So it was very much a kind of a, a, a theatrical childhood. You know, I was backstage, not film, not even television, although mum and dad did do a bit of television, but but theatre was the thing I knew about and, and I was often backstage, you know, taken backstage, and I loved that feeling of being backstage. Loved it. I read that, I don't know, I, I guess, first of all, most kids sort of resist what their parents do or want them to do or any of that. And I get the sense that you were not particularly moving in the direction of, of following in your parents' footsteps until something at, I believe, 16. You saw something at a theater festival. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I wasn't thinking of that at all. I was at a school. My sister was immediately so going to be an actress she was just clearly obviously immediately this incredible performer not because she was performative or precocious she wasn't she was very and is still very private and quiet but she was from the word go she was a very brilliant actress um and left school at 16 and went immediately into the profession and started to earn money and all of that so she's been independent since she was 16 years old um I, on the other hand, want, was I was quite academic. I really liked academia and I liked um, studying, so I went to university. But before that, I went to a theatre festival in Avignon in France and I saw an amazing production of Racine's Fed. And I think I, think I liked it mostly because the actors took their clothes off <laughs> and the men were very attractive. And I went to see it many, many times, probably mainly because of that, but also because of the drama of it. I mean, it's an incredible play, um, Racine's Andromac. And actually, it was Andromac. It was Andromac. It wasn't fed. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. just that I loved the Greek myths anyway. So this story of passion and power and love and tragedy and misery. I mean, of course, it spoke to the 16-year-old in me with such, it was so attractive. And I wrote to my dad and I said, Dad, I think I cannot not be a part of this profession in some way, in whatever way it will have me, you know? Now, had he or your mom discouraged or encouraged or, you know, the fact that you wrote that letter, was that because you needed to sort of make a, a declaration of independence or what was that about? I think it was a genuine desire to share. My parents were very supportive and would never have said, oh, for God's sake, do anything but this. Um, I mean, you know, they would have liked me to have been a politician, I think, um, possibly prime minister. But that was never, even though I have a political brain, I do, a part of me, um, th that would not have made me happy. So they were 
they were very supportive of us both. But Dad died well before I became an actor, actually. I was only 22. I was doing, I was still doing sketch comedy. I was not acting at all in anything. He missed everything because he was, you know, he died so young. So, um, yeah, it's interesting because this morning I heard his voice on the radio because I'd just been talking to the radio here in the UK about a book I've just written for kids and, um, we're making a piece of theatre. We're making Nanny McPhee, the musical at the moment. Mm-hmm. And there's something about him. He seems to be very present at the moment. And so they did a piece about how he wrote for children because writing for children is a very specific thing. And I've always said that my, he, he was my inspiration. He always said that he didn't think that children should be spoken down to. They should not be patronised or treated as though they didn't understand life's joys and its darkness or didn't weren't aware that life was both things that they need to be of course they need to be protected from the worst but they know so much more than we do we bash it out of ourselves as we go through school and we go through university you know we're very adept at crushing our childish instincts and um, it doesn't do us any good at all you know actually if education really were to be successful it would be to indicate to children that it's very important to follow their instincts to a certain degree and then to learn how to navigate and manage those instincts and their emotions. That would be a real education, wouldn't it? Well, and I guess being an actor is probably the most professionally close that one can be to remaining childlike, right? I mean, you're depending on your imagination. Yes, that's very true. And I think that it's very interesting because I consider myself to be, um, you know, fully adult. Uh, I know how to manage my emotions. Um, I know how to uh, not be swayed too far, or, or if I am swayed, to take myself off until such time as I'm able to navigate or process or whatever. This is what being an adult is about. So I, one's got to be very careful to define what one means by childish or childlike, you know. Um, but this, at the same time, my process as an actor, I think, is actually weirdly childlike in the sense that um, it is my imagination at work very much. And that uh, I'm beginning to realise that that's how it works in the sense that, um, no, I'll get a script and I'll read it and I'll learn it, but I won't really know what's going to happen until I become that person. And becoming that person is in fact just like being a child saying, and now I'm the emperor of China. (laughs) It's very odd. It's just a kind of flicking of a switch. It's peculiar. Absolutely. Well, now a minute ago, you said something that not everyone will probably know about you, which is that this really began for you in comedy more than drama. And I wonder if you can just talk about why it it sounds like from things I've, I've read from going way back that you were almost repelled by the kinds of things that were offered to a young woman in dramatic projects. And I wonder if that was as much what led you to comedy as an interest in comedy or was it, you know, just what was, what was behind that? It didn't, didn't happen that way around. I was always in comedy. I, that's what I wanted to do. I, I didn't study it or anything to study acting, but I, I joined the footlights with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And we, we were professionally connected for several years after we left university. And we did, um, we took a comedy review around Australia. Then we did sketch comedy on television, two series and several other things. Um, and then I went and did the musical of me and my girl. Um, so I was always going to do comedy and I wanted really my great hero or heroine was Lily Tomlin mm-hmm. and Jane mm-hmm. Wagner, Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which is one of the great shows of all time. And Lily seemed to me to be such a kind of groundbreaker you know she played men and she played um women she played sort of extremely parodic things but also very subtle and uh, the writing was exquisite and I just wanted to be her um and so I wrote sketch comedy um for a living I also did many Nile 
nail sort of bitingly scary forays into stand-up comedy, which <laughs> I was just too scared by, just too scared by. I'm such an admirer of it as a form, but bloody hell, it's really frightening. So, yeah, it was after doing that comedy that I got to acting. And it was actually the moment where I said, I'm just not doing these parts was much later because it was when I was in my late 30s, early 40s that I was offered the most boring parts ever, ever. (laughs) Just they were all the woman going, no, no, don't leave and leave me and the children doing the domestic things. Go and do the brave hero thing. Don't do that. We need you here. That was the part. (laughs) I said, I'm not playing that. I will not play that. I will not play that and I will not play the bad mother because she works. I will not play that either. I will not um, shore up these false false um, versions of women. I won't do it. So, um, yeah. Well, that conviction, even, again, it's it's on paper going back. It's not like it's something you came upon uh, that conviction later in, in life. I mean, I, I, first of all, your Oscar acceptance speech exactly 30 years ago was talking about, we need better roles for women and it goes back before that. But I guess I wonder where that even came from. I, the, the, I mean, there are people that are, who are afraid to say they're feminists or they don't like the word or any of this for you, you knew somehow very early on, that even if it was going to cost you opportunities, that was going to be your your position. So what, where does that come from? Well, I don't know, um, but I would I would I would guess that the the for any woman or for any person who's um, not got the support, the overt support of the society they live in. Um, it's about confidence, which you can only get from your parents. Now, so. I'm white, so that's a positive in that our society. That was helpful. But I was a woman, which was not so helpful. Um, so you come out shouting, you know. I came out of Cambridge out of um, feeling that somehow I had to be better somehow because women weren't as good as on any level. Uh, meant that, that it, it makes you quite extreme. You know, you see, when you're when you feel not seen or you don't feel that you're represented you have to come out shouting otherwise no one will look at you so we see that we see that with all groups all peoples who are ignored or suppressed in some way or um or or feared um and whether we like it or not we live in deeply misogynistic societies in america and in the uk um and I, and I can talk to that with, in other countries as well, intersectionally. I can talk about it in African countries and Myanmar. And, you know, we, this is where we live. This is where we live. And that's um, how it is. So I would say that I was just terribly, terribly fortunate to be able to feel as though I would survive if I said these things, that I would have somehow the backing of my parents or people, enough people, that it wouldn't destroy me. If I had come, for instance, from a, a very different background where I didn't wasn't given confidence, where I, where, where where perhaps my parents said, "What are you doing this for?" This is then maybe I wouldn't have had the confidence to say, "No, I'm not going to embody that." It's to do with how much backup you have, in a way. I think you know. You think to yourself, oh, "It would be nice to think it was my conviction." Of course, I have. I had and have deep, deep convictions about those things. I always have had since I was very young. Um, and it was very important to me to, uh, uh, to to stick, to adhere to those convictions. Um, but had I been poor, you know, maybe it would have been it's more harder. difficult. Well, here's a – just to inject one other thing into the equation, I want to read back to you a quote from – This is a 1995 interview you did with the LA Times. Quote, my father died when I was 22, and I can't begin to tell you how much I regret his not being around. At the same time, it's possible that were he still alive, I might never have had the space or courage to do what I've done. Close quote. What do you mean by that? Because I think it might relate to what we've been talking about. Yes, I think it might. Um, when, When my dad died, he was very young. He was 52 just turned 53 and uh he 
it left a great space, a huge ragged hole in our lives. And um, something's got to fill it, you know. And he was, I think, a very ambitious, driven man. And um, I think I must have inherited a lot of that drive. Um, And he... uh, My mum said something very interesting years and years ago. She said, if Dad had lived and you'd seen you do all this, he might have been quite jealous. <laughs> and I, yeah. I thought that was such an interesting thing for her to say, not in an awful way, but yeah. no, um, I just thought that was a fascinating um, extrapolation somehow from from my mum. No, not jealous, I don't think, in a kind of tear, tear them down way at all, um, but to be able to take pride and joy in the achievements of your children is terribly important. You know, I can't imagine not being proud and happy about my children, whatever they do, that that's great and good. I, I just revel in, that makes me very happy. Um, but I get also that, you know, absolutely that you could somehow put someone's nose out of joint by (laughs) taking up too much space. Well, the the fact that you did transition into drama, I think, relates to somebody who, uh, sadly, I think, just passed away, right? Just a couple of weeks ago. Was that uh, Robbie Coltrane, yes, right? Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, and actually, I, was, I mentioned him today in this little speech I did to the critics, um, because it's Robbie's um, responsibility that I did transition into acting because he and I had done a lot of sketch comedy together and then he was cast in this John Byrne thing called Tutti Frutti and he was talking to the producers and they said oh we we need a Scottish girl to play your you know the 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 her the late the late the woman and um he said, oh, you need to talk to Emma because she can talk Scots, you know, because my mum's from Scotland. So it was, and I met the director and the producer and I didn't feel too guilty about it because I am half Scottish and I spent a lot of time up there. <laughs> and that's how I got Tutti Frutti. And that was the first straight part that I had ever done. And I was 26, wasn't I? And that paired in the same year, I guess, with Fortunes of yeah. War, which was the beginning of you and Kenneth Branagh working together. And, yeah. and uh, that, I guess, results in the BAFTA TV Award for Best Actress. Suddenly people know you as a dramatic actress. And then, not knowing that there's all this history with comedy, you go and do your sketch show, Thompson, which I've got to ask you about only because it seems like a almost a pivotal turning point or, or moment, scarring in a way, it seems like, because... Here you are getting to do what you've seems like always wanted to do. And there's sort of such a mean spirited, maybe misogynistic reaction to this that you've never really gone back to that, right? Sketch comedy. No, no, it's so interesting that we should be talking about it because I am sitting down writing about professional criticism, which I think is a very important part of the development of performing arts um, and really do. But it's also something that needs to take responsibility. And I said in my speech today, I said, you know, if I hadn't had that reaction to this series that I did, which was, yes, it was, a lot of it was deeply misogynistic, actually. Um, But it was very, very contemptuous. A lot of it was vindictive and full of, of, it was really, really tough to take and I thought okay I quietly laid aside the Lily Tomlin ambition and I decided to commit perhaps a bit more to acting because that was clearly what people wanted me to do Um, and I wonder I was saying to the critics today I wonder what would have happened had I been treated a little bit more judiciously where would I be now and what would I have written and actually in the end I think I would have ended up in a very similar place. And and as I was writing it, it came it came back to me that in the series, and this relates to Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which I suppose is the thing I 
sort of proudest of in a way and the thing I couldn't have played until now. It relates back to a sketch I wrote in Thompson in the series, which is about a woman who experiences, she's in a psychiatrist's office, it's two people in the sketch, and she's telling the psychiatrist about the fact that she keeps experiencing unexpected and uh, spontaneous orgasms. So it was all about a woman, um, it was of course a chance to do physical comedy, having spontaneous orgasms mm-hmm. in the psychiatrist's office, played by Charles Kay, whose last, well, he had the punchline to the sketch, which was, get out, you filthy cow. So the sketch was about a woman <laughs> experienced sexual things, being told that that was wrong and that was sort of disgusting in some way. And I thought, well, that's Nancy. It's about her experiencing or, you know, experiencing something that was she then crushed in some way because she thought it was wrong. And I thought, so I've... I've come to this place in the end in the same way. And I I, I I thought of a good way of describing good luck to you, Leo Grand, actually, when I was writing the speech yesterday, which is it's a coming of old age movie. You know, because we keep talking about coming of age movies, but there's also coming of old age. And that's a thing. You know, it's a real thing to recognize that you're old. Um, I don't mean old, old. I don't mean elderly. But we are, in my generation, right. people in our 60s, we're old now. It's a different thing. It's a, life is a different thing. Our response to work, our response to one, everything is different. Um, so, And we have to come to that. We have to recognize it, see it, and inhabit it, and question it, and uh, experience it, and not pretend that we're still 30, because that's not right. going to work. <laughs> No. And, you know, obviously we'll come uh, in, a, in a bit to Leo Grand more in depth, but it is interesting. It's full circle in, in that way, but also in the way that um, I think your first film role, which was The Tall Guy, right, in I think 1991, you and Jeff Goldblum, mm-hmm. there was that was your having to do on-screen nudity for the first mm-hmm. time as well then, which I don't think it was necessarily any more comfortable when you're so you know very young either right no but actually funnily enough jeff and i we were so scared oh my god we were so scared the pair of us and um we got on set and in about half an hour everyone was completely relaxed and calm and we laughed and laughed and laughed we were so happy and after that experience i never feared it again because because i realized mm. that if you just were calm and you made sure that, you know, your crew or whoever was on set with you were, um, you know, calm too. It was okay. <laughs> well, um, so just one last question before we get to where I think the whole world really got to know you with Howard's End. But before that, there were, I think it was something like four or five projects that you did with Kenneth Branagh, that were maybe your introduction to screen in terms of screen projects. Sure. Fortunes of War in 87, Henry V, 89, Dead Again, 91, Peter's Friends, 92, and Much Do About Nothing, 93. And I just wonder when you think back to those and just sort of um, building up to what was to come after that, uh, you know, and working with somebody who you're involved with at that time, I, I think it's interesting because so often, and this is something I've read you say, just because in real life you're involved with somebody doesn't necessarily make it easy to translate that to the screen, right? Oh, yeah, I don't think it's... I, I think it's very difficult, actually. I wouldn't recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, oh, Ken and I had a wonderful time making all those films. We were so lucky and fortunate, really. I mean, fortunes of all we met, we fell in love and, you know... Then after that, we Peter's Friends was a kind of great combination of we made it. I think it cost a million dollars, and we made it with that company in one house in I think it was a month. You know, it was one of those, and it was such fun. Um, the wonderful Rita Rita Rudner and and then Much Ado. No, then Dead Again. Scott Frank wrote that script. It's a fantastic script. Um, I mean, actually, I have to say, I don't think Ken or I is very good um, in it, but um, that's just my opinion. And I I really include myself roundly in that. But I just feel like um, 
that 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 script was just so great. Um, that's the thing I remember very very clearly about that. And I also met Lindsay Duran, who's the producer of Sense and Sensibility and Nanny McPhee, and now the musical yes. of Nanny, who was a great long long time friend since then. Um, and and as is Scott, so we had a wonderful wonderful time, and I'll never forget getting into a car and driving myself to Paramount Studios down Sunset. It was just, you know, we were living in a little house we'd rented um, and it was very romantic and Ken had his 30th birthday, I think, there, so I was 31 or something. And then Much Ado was just a truly magical experience. I remember getting there and Ken saying to the entire company, right, now you have to go out and get brown because you can't look all sort of pallid like little English people. You've got to look Tuscan, <laughs> you know? So um, I remember me and Imelda Staunton lying in the sun going, well, this is, this is we've got to do this. It's work, isn't it? It doesn't feel like work, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> and Keanu coming and being right. delightful. And just, you know, it was a very happy time. Denzel, Washington yeah. coming, and just yep. not being able to cope with the heat. He just got absolutely blasted by the heat, and I kept finding him lying under bushes, going, "I can't. It's so hot." <laughs> That's one my memory of darling Denzel. Yeah. It was a very, very happy company. So thirty years ago, more or less, well, almost exactly, uh, you wind up playing the part that I think maybe you'll forever be most associated with because Oscar doesn't hurt that association. But, and that's, of course, Margaret in Howard's End, the first time you're working with James Ivory. Do you, I, I've gotten the sense that you don't necessarily like, this was maybe the first time that you'd really strongly fought for a part in this, in this way where you were literally reaching out to James Ivory, the director, and saying, I've got to do this. Is that is that no, right? No, I've never. I, I'm too sort of diffident to fight for anything. Fighting for a part really fit, meant I just wrote to him and said, "I really know who this woman is. I know how to play her." That was all. Um, and his letter to me saying, "I think you know who this woman is. I'd like you to play her." Crossed my letter in the post. <laughs> um, so it was very. If for that's fighting, then you know it's certainly it's deeply British, and it comes with a cucumber sandwich rather than you know a sank foil. Why do you think, though, that you sort of connected with this character that deeply? She was a blue stocking, you know. She was a feminist. She was a young woman who was looking for social justice and justice in the world, female agency, um, and I identified with her completely. And the book, Howard's End, is just remarkable, and Ian Forster's examination of the place of women at that time is, is just masterly. Um, so it was a marriage of my political, well, I don't know whether belief system is the way to put it. My instincts about the world, um, all came together in Margaret plus her sort of, um, quixotic nature. Um, but at the same time, a kind of practicality, the fact that in the end she marries Mr. Wilcox, partly because she wants to experience intimacy you know, and and her sister, Helen, experiences intimacy outside of the sort of marriage that, and, and pays a terrible price for it, which Margaret then chooses to share the burden thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. she just meant so much to me. She was very like, I've, I just understood exactly who she was. Now, did you, in the making of that film, while that was happening, did you feel like it was going really well or did you have to hear other people's reactions to, to realize that there was such a response to your performance that ultimately it does wind up with all kinds of accolades including the oscar no there's no sense of that at all it's very difficult to describe but um or to americans how how sort of unfamiliar british people were at that time with the oscars you know, we had only just started having them on the television even. I didn't grow up with the Oscars. You know, it just wasn't part of our our, our discussion. It, 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 it was a far away thing 
that happened in Hollywood with Marilyn Monroe and sort of other dead people. It wasn't it wasn't something that was alive in our minds, you know. Um, right, it, it wasn't right. something that you yearned for or that you even thought you belonged in that world. So so no, there was absolutely no. I, I don't think like that anyway. I, I don't I don't think any actor does. But I mean, you even apparently you had like a actually a physical reaction against suddenly the the crazy spotlight that people are thrust into when they're getting that sort of a response. Mm. I mean, it's on the one hand, it's got to be kind of exciting and surreal. But on the other hand, you from the very beginning sort of resisted that. Chaos, yeah, I didn't right? like it. I didn't like it. I got very ill. I got a chest infection that confined me to quarters for for some time. I was supposed to go out and go to parties and things, but I, I just got ill. I thought, I can't cope. And when I was out there and on that first awards trail for Howard's End, um, parts of it were just sort of giddy and ha and very happy, especially meeting great heroes um, of mine, heroes and heroines. Uh, um, Clint Eastwood, <laughs> I heard, was a, was a big one Clint for you. Clint was so <laughs> lovely to me and to my mum who was with me. And, uh, and Tony was there, of course. Tony Hopkins was there. So, you know, he was my lodestone and my, my rock, you know. So um, we'd sort of clutch at each other and just go, well, this is a bit of all right, isn't it? And we'd go to parties and <laughs> he had a very posh agent called Ed Lamato, I remember. And I remember going yeah, to yeah. his house for a, a do and Faye Dunaway opening the door and, and Jack Nicholson being there and being incredibly, and me feeling like a geography teacher from, you know, northwest London. I just felt, I don't, I don't be rude about geography teachers, but I felt so sort of dislodged and somehow out of you know, all these people knew each other and had grown up in Hollywood and had been to the parties and stepped over Robert Mitchum, who's lying on the floor drunk, you know. And I had busy, busily been doing sort of political gigs for CND in Nicaragua in, in pubs in Finsbury Park, you know what I mean? It was, it was like a world right. away. And I, right, it was... Right. Now, were you and Hopkins already, by the time the award stuff for Howard's End was happening, were you guys already back with Merchant Ivory on Remains of the Day, or did that happen afterwards? I, I think, did I win the Oscar for Howard's End in 92? Uh, you won it in early 93. The movie was 92, so by and then in 93 was when Remains of the Day was released, so I feel like there must have been overlap. Yes, I think we made Remains in, in 92. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we went straight into it. It was amazing. And watching Tony do that show. I mean, we, he and I, we just would, we'd cry sometimes when we were shooting that. We just, because we both found it so intensely moving, you know, because we knew about the class system in our country. And I knew about service. Well, it co comes back to your grandmother, right? I mean, completely. The same one who we'd talked exactly about earlier. Exactly so. Right? She worked as yeah. a servant all her life. And servants weren't allowed to have lives. How Kazuo Ishiguro knew that, he was able to investigate that and write. I mean, the book is sublime. It's so, so heartbreaking. And and yet, of course, in 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 his voice, in, in Stevens's voice, all the way through, this kind of un unable to recognize that he was utterly, utterly denied a life. Absolutely. And in fact, this whole thing of repressed emotion, um, you know, what what you, you talk about, I think, again, connects with Leo Grant in the sense that what she's gone through to get to the point where she finally is willing to experiment later in life and whatever. But also here, there's a scene where Miss Kenton finds Hopkins' character with a book. And you've talked about how that might be as erotic as anything you've played. Can you just remind people what is going on there that makes that so memorable both to you and to viewers? Of course, yes. I remember it to this day so clearly that we had to do this scene where 
where my character, Miss Kenton, comes into Stevens's room and, and finds she's brought a little thing of flowers. Of course, she's half in love with him already anyway, but she's trying to make a connection with him. And she's brought some flowers in because she thinks, well, that's a nice thing to do for him. And he's in a cardigan, so he's not, he's off duty, they're off duty. And, um, and he's reading and she expresses a desire to see what he's reading and he doesn't want to show because it's a romance um because of course he he's he's she he he thinks that she will expect him to be reading i don't know hazlitt or something and and it's just this silly romance and he doesn't want to show her but also he's got feelings for her that he can't cope with and doesn't know how to express or reveal in any way even to himself and um I remember when we first started to play it, I was a bit up to, I was sort of fizzing because I thought somehow perhaps she would be fizzing. And Tony said, no, no, don't do it like that. Think of, think of a fly buzzing in the window, slowly dying, that kind of lazy, sort of slightly warm, soporific feel to an afternoon off a Sunday where there's not much going on and there's no sort of, charge in the air because then we've got somewhere to go which is a brilliant piece of direction actually um which jim ivory wonderfully supported and said yeah yeah try it try it he was just wonderful to work for because he just let you get on with it um so we played it like that and suddenly i came in not really energized and suddenly she becomes interested in this book and she she corners him by the window and wrests it from his grasp and as she's looking at it Tony does this amazing thing where he's speaking to her without any emotion whatsoever but he's looking at her mouth and you know he wants to kiss her but he doesn't and when she looks up it's he breaks it and when we played it the tension the erotic tension, I would say, between them was so powerful that I'd get to the end of the scene and be faint, feel actually feel faint. Um, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. Wonderful thing to play. Amazing, yeah. And that same year, just to remind folks, you were uh, the lawyer in in the name of the father for Jim Sheridan with Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, that's all in one year. You again, back at the Oscars for both of them, that's happened only like a dozen or so times uh, in history that somebody's nominated for two performances in the year. Um, and I guess at that point is when Hollywood opportunities, more like studio commercial things were probably being offered to you than at any other point. And you did do one, uh, which was junior with mm. Schwarzenegger, mm. but it seems like you chose not to go down that path. And I wonder if that was just sort of a bad reaction to what that sort of process entails for an actor or, or what, what that was about, because you probably had you chosen to could have done more of, you know, back and forth, but it seems like you opted not to. Um, I don't think that it was as conscious as that. I mean, I, uh, I don't think I was offered anything that interested me, you know. Um, um, that was a time when I really was offered just an awful lot of very dull things, um, <laughs> uh, which I won't go into because that would be unfair. But um, I just thought the parts were not interesting. And I also thought that the, some of them were sententiously wrong about women. And I just thought, I, you know, it's not. It, it, it was very important to me the way in which women are represented. It always has been. And I didn't want to represent something that um, I thought was false, that was just a kind of um, a, a trope, you know. It was a, it was just the character, it was the girl, it was the woman. It was just so much of it was so incredibly dull. Junior was such good fun because she was a scientist. And, of course, it was Arnold who was fascinating right. to me you know and it was Danny DeVito <laughs> and and lovely um our director and um you know I was it it was very very good fun and a lot of the stuff the other stuff, I would have taken things if they'd been interesting it wasn't me going oh I don't like Hollywood or I don't like this world not at all I, I, I work with people that I that I was interested in I worked on projects that I was interested in 
And when I didn't get them, I didn't d- didn't work. Plus, by that point, I'm sure for already a, a couple of years, the Sense and Sensibility Project was already just stating where you mentioned somebody earlier who uh, I guess this is Lindsay Duran from Goes Back to yeah. Dead Again, right? And and even from Thompson, I guess the one one good thing that came out of that, I believe she was a fan of yours in that. And But the bottom line is she... What made her think, let's go to Emma about not only acting in this uh, film version of Sense and Sensibility that I have the rights to, but to write it as well. And then what made you, it's apparently it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, yeah, this is great right out right away. It was, can we do Persuasion instead? Yes, that's right. She said, I want you to adapt Sense and Sensibility. I said, why? And she said, well, you know that sketch you wrote about um, Victorian mother whose daughter comes home and and reveals that not only does she not even know what a penis is but she's seen it and thinks it's a small pink hairless mouse that's part of her husband's <laughs> experimental work in his laboratory i mean you know that 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 the utter failure of this parent to um give the, her daughter what she needed to know which actually was inspired by an Edith Wharton short story um which is you know just one of the greatest writers and and actually hugely feminist writer Wharton um it's interesting where things come from but it was that that inspired Lindsay to ask me to write Sense and Sensibility and I said really because Sense and Sensibility is quite it's quite the the language is very um arcane actually uh and I mean, it was still 17th century, really, um, almost. But she said, no, no, it's definitely the one. I actually said Persuasion because it's one of my favourites, and I love them all, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I think Persuasion is a fantastic story. Um, But she said, "You'll, you'll be surprised, the story, you know. So I had a go. I went to Ruth Provajavala, who'd obviously adapted Howard's End and then Remains of the Day so brilliantly. And she said, oh, we'll just adapt the whole thing and see what works. And that's what I did. 17 or so drafts later, there you there you go. with. And we should not forget that you also, of course, acted in this. And maybe the, the just to, in the way that you were nice enough to dissect that scene from Remains of the Day, I wonder if I can ask you about a scene with the probably the most pivotal scene in this with you and Hugh Grant, where you've spoken about, you know, it's not always well received that the actor who's not speaking is emoting or whatever. But this was talk about how that wound up being the case here. Oh, it was it was heaven, actually, because I'd written in the piece um, a, a speech for Edward, which I wrote quite early on in the process of adapting it's not in the book, but I wrote it early on and it just stayed because it always made sense. It was always, it, I'd got it right the first time, which nothing else was. Um, and I said to Hugh, and I'd written it with Hugh in mind, and he just come out off Four Weddings and a Funeral was more famous than God, you know. So <laughs> he turns up on set and he's he's having a nice time and he enjoyed it. And he's very funny when he talks about Ang as well. Um, but we get to that scene at the end where... Eleanor finds out that he's not married. I mean, literally finds out from him in a room with her mother and thing. And suddenly the something in her chest, in her tightly wound, repressed little chest, a key is turned and the floodgates open and she can't control her reaction, which is a kind of flood of tears. And... um <laughs> And so we did this for the first time, and Hugh said, "Are you going to do it like that? You can, you can, you're not going to sob noisily all the way through my speech." And I said, "But Hugh, that's the gag. That's what makes it work. You're making this beautiful speech, and she can barely hear you. She's so happy. She so doesn't know what she is. But it doesn't mean to say we're not going to hear what you say, which we do. We do. It's not like." We absolutely hear what he says because he's he delivered it so beautifully. Um, but he was so annoyed. And Ang luckily said, <laughs> no, no, no. But I think we did it. We did it several times. And um, the the time, the, the one that's chosen is really quite restrained, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see the outtakes. I, I, I don't yeah. know if they were doing uh, DVD outtakes in those days, but that would be fun to see. Uh, 
So I, there's so many we could talk about on, on route to Leo Grand, but in the interest of time, can I just mention a few others and just the first thought or two that comes to mind mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll, uh, come to Leo Grand, but, um, Richard Curtis, you had first, he had his first screenplay was your first film, the tall guy that we mentioned earlier. Now, all these years later, 2003, I believe you are back in working together in this case, love actually. And there's another moment where you have to turn on the waterworks a little bit. Um, what just people love love actually it's become, I don't know if you ever would have imagined that it would become the kind of annual classic that it, it already has become, but just anything about that one. Oh, well, you know, um, I was, I was married to Alan, darling Alan, who's also died too young. Um, and you know, I was just happy to be with him and and also Richard, who I'd known since I was 19, um, before even going to university. And, um, you know, that scene was so, I mean, it was easy because it was, it was just beautifully constructed because it was the ideal construction in the sense that um, Karen, my character, um, is such a high expectation and she thinks she's going to receive this thing and the audience knows that she's not. So the audience is forewarned. So they're ready for her reaction. And because her reaction is private and the audience gets to share it only with her, but she doesn't share it with her family because she's doing something that we all do, which is we try not to upset our families, our children, our partners, if we're upset and people just understand that, um, which is only evidence of our our great human kindness, our shared kindness, actually. People understand it because they've done it themselves. You know, mostly we don't, we don't, and it's not because necessarily we've even been brought up to do that, although, some, you know, those of us who have had good parenting, generally speaking, one of the things we've learned is that parents keep the most painful experiences from us when we're children because they know that we'll take them on board and we'll find them difficult to process and difficult to anneal and we'll want to comfort when we can't. So it's very important that we protect children from our extreme emotions unless, you know, obviously we can share certain things, but there's two young children there and Karen's just being a good mum, that's all. And, And then later she's able to say, yeah, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That same year, somehow, was also Angels in America, where you've worked with Mike Nichols several, worked with Mike Nichols several times, I wit, and I think another, but Angels in America was just this mind-blowing cast bringing to the screen such a important story, and I I guess just anything perhaps about Mike or the project there that... Oh, well, you know, that was just beyond belief, being able to do that. Mike asked me... Very early on, he said, you're coming, you're doing this. I said, okay, right, I'm in, I'm in. My, my daughter was quite little. Um, she was only, I mean, like two and a half or something. We'd done Wit together when she was nine months old. Um, and so she'd been on the set of Wit with Mike. He was a kind of great kind of godfather to her and really a kind of father figure, a, a very important father figure to me. So having time with him on the set of Angels, with Al Pacino, with Meryl, the first time I'd worked with Meryl, whom I got to snog. 
Um, <laughs> it was just such a, a blazing kind of time for all of us. Um, you know, Justin Kirk and Ben Shankman, these beautiful boys who were terrified, you know, because this was a big old deal. But I can remember the best, I think one of the best meals I've ever had in my whole life, which was to do with where we were, the food we were eating, but mostly the company, was me and Mike and Tony Kushner um, in a restaurant in in Rome, um, just talking I think there was one other person. I think it was Oscar was with us, who's Tony's producing partner. I can't remember. can't remember. Sorry. Uh, I, I can't quite remember. But there we were in Rome doing this incredible thing and sitting, having these loving, deep conversations. And I thought, this is very special and will not be repeated you know, because particularly Tony and Mike, you know, just extraordinary. And always, always when Mike and I had time together, we always had these amazing discussions and these rehearsal things were extraordinary. But we spent a lot of time together outside work just talking. No, it was just a very long conversation. And I'm so grateful that I had him and Diane Sawyer, who's still in my life, I'm so lucky to have her, but I was so lucky to meet him. And oh, That's great. Now, your return to writing something that you were also in took longer than expected, I think, only because Nanny McPhee turned out to be a lot more yeah. fighting. You bit off maybe, no, right? <laughs> more work than we thought. I thought, oh, this is going to be right. easier than Sense and Sensibility, but there's no story in the books. So I, I picked it off the shelf. I sent it to Lindsay. I go, you know, I'll just... I'll just write the screenplay. Seven years later, <laughs> it took forever. I mean, in the first screenplay, which is about 100 million pages long, it's completely <laughs> unrecognisable. It's a totally different story. There's 75 children and Mr and Mrs Brown, and Mrs Brown's still alive and kicking. And it ended up, oddly enough, at the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London, you know, I mean, it's just, it's completely, it, it, it took so long to get that together. But you don't make, don't make things it. easy for yourself there. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, uh, you know, in, in the intervening years there, there's Stranger Than Fiction, where you're the narrator, which was a fun one and unexpected with what Will Ferrell's mm. doing. There's, that's in 2006, and Education in 2009. I know it's only a few scenes, but, yes. a, but a really great movie. Um, and then there's the Harry Potter films, which were three of these, but only, I know you've said a few days, but uh, each, but obviously you probably reached more than everything else combined, just given the, in the, hugeness of that fan base but the one that you have said might have been the hardest that you've ever played and i don't know if this is still the case but at the time you'd said that was pl travers in saving mr banks why of all these tough things you've you've been off why was that one so daunting in 2013 well because pl herself was such a daunting person to inhabit she was a very tricky woman and um, tricky in life and tricky to play you know, tricky to inhabit. Um, very, you know, she was just very sort of disturbed, actually. And uh, I loved doing it. And Kelly Marcel's script is so beautifully constructed and put together. Um, but she you know, she required a lot of energy and, and, and focus because she was so complicated. She's probably... Yeah, she was so complicated. But I loved making that movie. I, I, I loved it. John Lee Hancock was such a wonderful director. We had a great time doing it. And it was a wonderful cast as well. It was a very valuable experience. Well, that brings us, you know, to the current moment where I, we should say just in the last couple of years, there had been these larger-than-life characters that you seem to be, I don't know, drawn to or just the way it worked out. But, you know, late night is the, I know, written for you by Mindy Kaling, Cruella. There's a number of these where it's very kind of showy is the wrong word, but, mm. you know, these are these are not uh, shy characters. And then we get to Leo Grand, and I wonder if you can just share. I mean, this is a part that I think probably would have scared most people 
if they had the opportunity to do it. And yet you were drawn to it, um, despite all the, the aspects of it that, that might be frightening the, obviously the nudity and the, just all the ways you have to be vulnerable in this. So why do that to yourself? (laughs) Because the script was so brilliant. I didn't realize when Katie sent it to me, Katie Brand was in my second Nanny Murphy and she's a wonderful writer. She's written a great book about dirty dancing, actually, which I highly recommend. Um, She's a very brilliant woman. And she sent me this script saying, oh, um, you know, I'm not sure if you'll be interested, but I'm, I really like this part, this, I wrote this thing and I had your voice in my mind and I read it and I just wrote back immediately and said, Katie, this is absolutely fantastic. It's so central to so many women's experiences and not just here in the UK, but in other parts of the world. It's an incredible comment on, you know, female sexuality and also shame and um, our response to whether uh, women should have pleasure. Um, and I so know so many women around the world who wouldn't dream of of thinking that sexual pleasure would be part of their lives on any level. Um, it's a deeply sort of Western notion. And also, she addressed she addressed the great taboo of not being entirely sure about whether you should have had your children. And that's a huge taboo in our society. You know, for for women who choose not to have children, it's still quite a kind of challenging thing for people to accept as though somehow you're not going to be a completely a woman if you don't have children, which is absolute nonsense. I'm constantly saying to my young younger friends, if you feel you don't want to have children, don't have them. It doesn't mean to say you're not going to be a full human or a full woman. You know, just because I haven't climbed bloody Everest, it doesn't mean to say that I haven't <laughs> accepted the challenges of life or experienced life to the full. You know, you don't have right. to push something through your vagina and and in, which is like taking as, um, who, who was it said, it's like taking your top lip and pulling it over your head. It was, it was, um, oh God. Wait, oh, anyway, I've, I've quoted someone who I can't remember. Uh, it, it, it's a, a wonderful black American woman. It's anyway. So someone will tell you, someone will tell you. But anyway, <laughs> great, yeah, great, you don't great. have to do it. So um, the fact that Nancy is someone who's, the person who's normally standing next to the hero or heroine and uh, not doing anything interesting, suddenly the focus is on her and you find that she is very interesting and that she is the heroic figure and she's doing this extraordinarily brave thing. She's terrified, terrified. Um, and also, as I discovered, we were talking earlier about you don't really find out what your character is going to be like until you start to play them. And it wasn't until I started to play Nancy that I found out how upset she was, how sad she was, how, you know, this undiscovered country that she longed to visit was really, really deeply part of her character and things that she had not experienced was sore, painful, painful. So it was... uh, beautiful beautiful experience and not something I could have done I think before now and I think also a film that would not have landed in the way that it has before the Me Too movement well that's exactly where the the just second to last question was going to go is that you've we've been speaking there's the subtext in almost everything you've done and that we've talked about of of feminism right and here we are at this moment where I guess on the uh, on the one hand, it's it's obviously very disturbing to see how me- how much of sort of bad behavior was has been going on. On the other hand, I guess it's good that it's uh, at least people are now comfortable to deal with it. But for you, what do you make of this moment where you know there's just so 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 much complexity to it, even in our little niche of the world in in this business, there are conversations like one that I was thinking from the minute I heard about this, I wondered what you would what you would think of, you know, a number of these award shows, Independent Spirit Awards, uh, several others are now doing this thing where there's not going to be best actor or best actress anymore. There's going to be a genderless category or two categories. Now, is that goods on the one hand or is it actually does that result in women having fewer opportunities for recognition, just stuff like, 
so I, I guess it's all a, a rambling way of asking you just this moment in society, but also in this industry. What do you what do you make of it all? Um, well, I'm probably quite old fashioned in the sense that I still think that there's a huge gap for women, older women. I don't think they're seen really on screen much. Um, I'm really welcome the sort of decoupling and the non-binary aspect coming in with young people. I love watching all those movies and seeing, you know, the change in our our responses to, you know, the male-female polarity. I love all that. I think that's very good. Um, yes, okay, maybe, um, but it will balance it out, you know. These things always happen in – it goes one way, it goes quite extreme, and then you sort of – it comes back and – um, what I make of the film industry at the moment, uh, I would say, you know, there's we've got room for improvement, but I think that there's a lot of very interesting things happening and being said. And I would say that um, that good luck to you, Leo Grant, and things like Late Night and the Children Act, and you know, um, next year I'm about to play a female dean of Westminster, which that's never happened before. You know, that was really interesting. I think that that. Certainly from my point of view as an older woman now, I feel like I've had the most interesting parts of my life and I, they have been written for me by younger women. So I love that sense of the circle turning and I love that sense of, of you know, young women writing for old women and older women recognising young women and non-binary people and saying, oh, look at that work, isn't that great? You know, when we see each other and we celebrate each other, um, that's, I think, when real change, and I don't want to use the word progress because it's kind of development, really, occurs. So I think that's the important thing, that we that we see our, one another's work, we recognise it and go, isn't that great? Because I hadn't thought about uh, life like that before. You know, I, I love all that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this and for all the many hours of uh, getting to watch you at work. And thanks a lot. Appreciate thank it. you, Scott. Thanks so much. You take care. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.